All right, let's pray. Father, I thank you for this day and, again, the gift that it is to us. And I ask that um, you, by the power of your Holy Spirit, would move in our midst, move through my voice and my words, help me to be as clear as I can in a, in a passage that is, is complex. And, um, Lord, I ask that you would guide us um, into greater openness to your Spirit moving in our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so uh, this week we are wrapping up our time in 1 Corinthians chapter 14. And really in this whole section, chapters 12 to 14, which Paul is tackling a big problem that's going on in the Corinthian church. The misuse and the abuse of spiritual ministries in their midst. They were doing it without love. In many instances and in very disorderly and chaotic ways and Paul is wading in to try to help them think biblically about it so first Corinthians chapter 14 we're gonna be in verses 26 to 40 uh, I don't have time today to review everything that we talked about last week the sermons up on Facebook um, I would encourage you, I think it's also on the website, I'd encourage you, if you didn't hear last week's, uh, pull it up and walk through that, um, because like I said, we don't have time to, to cover all of chapter 14, that's 40, 40 verses. Um, my own, uh, well, I just, I want to acknowledge right, right from the start here, this topic, as many of you know, spiritual gifts, uh, prophecy, tongues, is very controversial in our world today. And I, in preparation for this, and over the last 15 years, um, I've read quite a bit, a lot of different perspectives on these things. And my own position at this point is that the gifts of prophecy and tongues do continue up to the present day. They have not ceased. Um, they will only cease, in my opinion, when the Apostle Paul says they will cease in 1 Corinthians 13, on the day that we know fully even as we are fully known. That's the day that we see Jesus face to face, the day that the perfect comes and the imperfect disappears and passes away as the new heavens and the new earth arrive. So that's my own personal position. Um, I will say if any of you are interested in diving into this topic deeper, doing some reading, to try to understand perhaps why, despite all the, let's be honest, craziness that sometimes goes on in circles that speak in tongues, why I still am a continuationist. And I believe the gifts continue. If you wonder why, if you want to research it more, I would, I would encourage you to pick up and read, I actually have it on order for the church library, it comes in a couple days, um, the book Showing the Spirit by D.A. Carson. Uh, D.A. Carson has been someone that has influenced me over the years uh, in his commentaries and his writings. I've been very helped by him. He helps a lot of people. Um, and even people that disagree with him uh, would say, if you're going to read one book about the, from the opposing side, the best book, read Showing the Spirit by D.A. Carson. Okay. Anybody at this point that writes anything about tongues, gifts, prophecy, they have to quote it. It's, it's one of those type of books. It was written 35 years ago, and since then it's like, okay, 
If you're going to tackle this, you have to deal with Don Carson's book. That's it's kind of one of those books. And it's similar with any of the books that he writes. If he says something about it, all right, then they don't take it as God's word, but it's like, oh yeah, you gotta, you got to wrestle with what Don says, because the dude's a, a very good exegete. And I have found him very convincing um, on his exegesis of 1 Corinthians 12 to 14. Another book that I also have an order uh, coming that may be helpful to you. I have all these digitally, or I could have them up here. Um, I read them on my computer, but uh, is Wayne Grudem. He has a book uh, on prophecy, and I forget the exact title of it, but uh, that would be one. On the other side of the perspective, uh, guys that believe that tongues have ceased, um, there's, a, there's a scholar named Richard Gavin who wrote a book called Perspectives on Pentecost, and uh, he, that's another one of those books that, you know, if you're going to critique the other side, you've got you to tackle what Gavin says. Uh, or, I'll, and I'll end with this last thing, there, there's a book that uh, is called Our Miraculous Gifts for Today, and it present, presents four views, and Richard Gaffin's in there. I think Wayne Grudem edits it. There's, there's Sam Storms, who's another guy. I, I've been really influenced by Sam Storms. These four guys present their positions, and then they, in the same book, and then these four guys critique each other's positions in the same book. And then these four guys respond to the critiques of their positions all in the same book. It's great. And guess what? They're all nice to each other. All right. And they met before and, and they, they would acknowledge that they're all followers of Jesus, even though they're very different perspectives. So our miraculous gifts for today, $7.99 on Kindle. Um, I'd recommend that one if you want to. Get started into this topic. It's helpful. All right, so that's all the preliminaries aside. Uh, let's let's dive into the text. First Corinthians 14, 26 to 40. Paul writes this. What shall we say, brothers and sisters? When you come together, each of you has a hymn or a word of instruction, a revelation, a tongue, or an interpretation. Everything must be done so that the church may be built up. If anyone speaks in a tongue, two, or at the most three, should speak, one at a time, and someone must interpret. If there is no interpreter, the speaker should keep quiet in the church and speak to himself and to God. Two or three prophets should speak, and the others should weigh carefully what is said. And if a revelation comes to someone who is sitting down, the first speaker should stop. For you can all prophesy in turn so that everyone may be instructed instructed and encouraged. The spirits of prophets are subject to the control of the prophets. For God is not a God of disorder, but of peace, as in all the congregations of the Lord's people. Women should remain silent in the churches. They are not allowed to speak, but must be in submission, as the law says. If they want to inquire about something, they should ask their own husbands at home, for it is disgraceful for a woman to speak in church. Or did the word of God originate with you? Or are you the only people it has reached? If anyone thinks they are a prophet or otherwise gifted by the Spirit, let them acknowledge what, that what I am writing to you is the Lord's command. But if anyone ignores this, they will themselves be ignored. Therefore, my brothers and sisters, be eager to prophesy, and do not forbid speaking in tongues. But everything should be done in a fitting and orderly way. All right. So, got this passage open in front of you, uh, Lord willing, 
you're looking at it. I want you to look at verse 26 for a second. You see how Paul gives a list of things that happen when the church gets together? And then he says, everything must be done so that the church may be built up. Then look down at the last verse, verse 40, okay? See how he says, but everything should be done in a fitting and orderly way? This whole section starts and ends with two statements that sum up everything that's going on in between. So verse 26, everything should be done to build up the church. Verse 40, everything should be done in a fitting and orderly way. Um, every general contractor or construction site manager says amen, right? You know, on the job, everything should be done to build up the house. Drinking and getting drunk on the side, that doesn't build up the house. That's not going to do it in a fitting and orderly way, okay? Um, things need to be there on time, right? So if the church is the house of God and the ministries of the Spirit, the goal of God's Spirit at work in the church is to build up and encourage the church, then we don't want to get in the way of what the Spirit wants to do in the church, right? So verses 26 to 20 into 40 are all summed up in this. This is the main point. God desires his people to gather together in an orderly and appropriate way in order that their meeting builds up everyone who is present. God wants his people to gather together in an orderly and appropriate way in order that their meeting builds up those who are present, in particular the believers that are there, the family of Jesus. Now, there's four main things that Paul is concerned with here, things that have to do with what's appropriate and what's orderly. First, speakers should take turns, verses 27 to 33. Second, tongues, if they're in church, should be interpreted, verses 27 to 28. The third orderly thing is that prophecy must be evaluated. Just take what they say as gold. Fourth, and finally, women must not evaluate prophecy in the church, in the gathered assembly. And that's in verses 34 to 38. And people debate what that means, and is that just for Corinth, or does that apply to all places? And we'll get into that a little bit. So let's jump into Paul's first point this morning. Speakers must take turns. I'll read these verses again, 26 to 28. What then shall we say, brothers and sisters, when you come together, each of you has a hymn or a word of instruction, a revelation, a tongue, or an interpretation. Everything must be done so that the church may be built up. If anyone speaks in a tongue, two, or at the most three should speak, one at a time, and someone must interpret. If there is no interpreter, the speaker should keep quiet in the church and speak to himself and to God. So the first thing I want to point out as we get started here is that Paul lists five things that are happening when the church of Jesus at Corinth gathers together. That doesn't mean this is the only things that are happening, but five verbal things that are happening, word-related things. First, 
he mentions hymns. People are singing to each other. Singing to each other with psalms, hymns, spiritual songs of gratitude in their hearts to God. That's why I love to hear you sing. That's why I don't want the music up so loud that you can't hear sinners singing to Jesus in thanksgiving to him. We want to hear songs sung to encourage other believers. Second, a word of instruction is shared. This is almost certainly tied to the instruction that the teachers in the church were giving. Teaching that was rooted in the teaching of the apostles and in the prophets, the Old Testament prophets, and the teachings of Jesus. So these two, hymns and instruction, are what we're most familiar with in our Baptist circles today, right? We've done one of them already. And we're doing one of them right now in, in instruction. Then Paul's going to launch into talking about three other things that can happen when the church gathers together. Sharing a revelation, one received from God with fellow believers through prophecy, or speaking in tongues, or interpreting tongues. And it's all three of these things that walk that are what Paul is spending significant time unpacking. Not just here, but the whole section. His first words of instruction pertain to speaking in tongues. First, Paul says, Paul says, if someone does speak in tongues in a gathered church service, uh, we shouldn't freak out, but we should expect a few things. They shouldn't be doing it with a bunch of other people speaking. A loud cacophony of noises, or cacophony, however you want to say that. I always laughing. I keep mispronouncing things all the time. In my limited experience, this is usually what I've seen take place in the gatherings of those who regularly use tongues in our churches around the world today. Paul says don't do that. So you have to come up with an answer for why you're doing it. Um, and I'll get to their answer in a minute. The reason Paul says the Corinthians were doing it is, um, or the reason Paul's writing this is because the Corinthians were obviously doing it. So he says, don't. And if people are going to speak in a tongue in church, then Paul says, three people at the most should go. Then they need to stop. And if there's someone in the gathering who actually understood what was being said, and as I explained from last week, my, my opinion here is that this person is not just someone making up some clever interpretation to justify the whole tongue-speaking thing going on, but it's actually somebody who's miraculously able to hear the speaker in their own language, praising God by the power of the Spirit. And so then this person should share, says Paul, with the whole church what they heard said so that everyone can be encouraged by it. But... If there's nobody there who understands what's being said, then the tongue speaker should keep silence in the gathering and speak tongues privately to the Lord and not in the gathered assembly of believers. In other words, if the Spirit is not enabling the ministry of interpretation to happen in the church, then those with the gift of tongues should keep quiet in the gathered assembly of believers. That person in the words of Paul, verse 28, should speak only to themselves 
as a god. Now, some folks who encourage speaking in tongues all at once together, they will take that to mean that they can speak quietly to themselves and to God in the worship gathering. And so all of a sudden you have dozens of people saying, well, I'm just speaking quietly to myself and to God. A silent cacophony of uninterpreted voices. That's not what Paul's saying. Exegesis is really important here. Verse 28 is very clear. Take turns. Doesn't mean go at the same time. Two or three max. This shouldn't take up the whole service. And if there is an interpreter there, it isn't, then keep silent. Verse 28, in the church. See that there? Verse 28. Silent doesn't mean speak to yourself. It doesn't mean whisper. It means don't speak, which means you have control over it, actually. Save it for when you're alone with the Lord and you're praising him privately, like Paul says that he does in the beginning of the chapter, more than any of them all put together. Paul's next <clears throat> guideline about taking turns applies to the prophets. People claiming to have a revelation, something they believe the Spirit of God put on their hearts to say to the church. Paul writes, verse 29 and following, Two or three prophets should speak, and the others should weigh carefully what is said. And if a revelation comes to someone who is sitting down, the first speaker should stop. For you can all prophesy in turn so that everyone may be instructed and encouraged. The spirits of prophets are subject to the control of prophets. For God is not a God of disorder, but of peace, as in the congregations of all the Lord's people. Now, before I unpack or just explain these guidelines a little bit more, I, I just want to say a bit about prophecy in the church. We talked a little bit more about tongues last week. We'll talk about prophecy. There's two main opinions about it. The first is that prophecy passed away once the New Testament was completed. And the second is that prophecy continues today. Those who think that prophecy has stopped are usually very concerned that the idea someone could prophesy today uh, threatens the unique authority of the Bible as God's completed revelation to us. His final authoritative word. Closed. And so if people are, if churches become filled with people claiming to have words from the Lord, the concern is that God's people will pay too little attention to the writings of Scripture and too much attention to the words of self-declared modern prophets. And I want you to hear me clearly. This is a very legitimate concern with a lot of case studies of this gone bad to validate the concern. <laughs> Unfortunately, in, in many circles where prophecy is supposedly practiced, it is passed off as authoritative words from God that people shouldn't argue with. Like the guy who came up to my former pastor, uh, John Piper at Bethlehem, he, 
Piper shares the story. He came up to him and he, he said, I've got a word from the Lord. Your wife is going to die by the end of the week. But while still alive today, right? So not helpful. Why did he even say that? What, what, what was the point? Because he, he could scare someone? I, this is not the way the Bible describes prophecy in the New Testament. And I don't think that the more respected charismatic scholars who are serious thinkers within the charismatic movement, serious students of the Bible, diligent exegetes, they don't hold that same view of prophecy either. Um, instead, in the New Testament, the spiritual ministry of prophecy is not given the same authority as the writings and teachings of the apostles. Prophets actually could be wrong in the New Testament, and their words needed to be tested. A prophet's words could be challenged and judged and even questioned, and the prophet could at times be mistaken. There's, and, and there's no indication, at least in the New Testament, that we see that the, a, a mistake would then make him a false prophet like you would read about in the Old Testament. One New Testament example of a Christian prophet who got a few wires crossed was Agabus. In Acts chapter 11, verse 28, Agabus, a prophet in the early church, is, and not an apostle, is, is speaking under guidance of the Spirit. And he indicated that there was a great famine coming. And the gospel writer Luke, who's writing Acts, he, he immediately he writes it down and he tells us this famine actually did indeed happen. In his kindness, it seems that God gave Agabus this revelation about a future famine coming, kind of like what God did with Joseph many years before, to prepare his church. Then, in Acts 21, verse 10, we read about Agabus again. He came to the apostle Paul, and speaking under the influence of the Holy Spirit, he again warned Paul about the dangers of his up, Paul's upcoming journey to Jerusalem. Paul is dead set on going to Jerusalem, and everybody there wants him dead, except the Christians. Think of anybody else that did that? Jesus, right? Face set like a flint to go to Jerusalem, where he's crucified. And Luke, in Acts chapter 21, clearly records two mistakes. Luke goes out of his way that we see it as mistakes um, that Agabus made in his prophecy about what would happen to Paul there. So, Agabus said that, one, the Jewish leaders of Jerusalem would bind Paul up, in verse 10, and two, that they would hand him over to the Gentiles. That's exactly what happened to Jesus many years before. But that was not what happened to Paul. Instead, Luke records, Acts 21, 33, just a few verses later, that it was the Romans who bound Paul and whisked him away to save him from being murdered in the streets by the Jews. So Agabus was right about the big picture, but wrong on the details. As Paul said in 1 Corinthians 13, he knew in part and he prophesied in part. He saw in a mirror dimly, not perfectly. And what's more, the reason that Agabus shared this prophecy with Paul 
was because he was trying to stop Paul from going to Jerusalem to get killed. Just like the disciples had tried to stop Jesus from going there so long before. But Paul was resolute, like Jesus, in his own understanding of the Spirit's leading and direction. He knew that he was going to face trouble there and persecutions in every city. He agreed with Agabus on the big picture, even if some of the details were fuzzy. But Paul also knew that God's Spirit was indicating, you are going to proclaim my name to the Gentiles at the ends of the earth. And what ended up happening is that the Gentiles, he appeals to Caesar and gets a state-sponsored mission trip straight to Rome, where he gets to preach the gospel to the emperor eventually, right? I mean, this is crazy. But Paul knew that Agabus's concerns, they, they weren't going to dissuade him because he was certain of what the Spirit had communicated to him. The Spirit had communicated to him Similar things, just more. Similar things. You're going to face persecution and trials in every city, but you're going to make my name known to the Gentiles. Another thing to notice about prophecy in 1 Corinthians 14, this is verse 30, is Paul says that one prophet should just stop talking if another prophet stands up while he's speaking. Paul seems unconcerned that some of a prophet's words would be lost forever. And never heard by the church. Now, if these New Testament prophets speaking in the assembly of God's people were actually speaking authoritative words from the Lord, and they were like literally on the phone with God in the assembly while they're giving their prophecies, I would think it would be an affront to the Lord to stand up and interrupt this word from the Lord. I mean, can you imagine if... A man of God in one of the Pentecostal churches, right, is given this word from the Lord. This is his authoritative word from the Lord. He's given it, and he's going, and he is going on and on and on. All of a sudden, some other brother in the assembly just gets this overwhelming sense that God wants him to say something. He stands up. You interrupting the man of God? Like, I don't know how that would go over. But Paul's saying, that's God, in, that's the spirit of God indicating, yeah, that guy's getting fuzzy. Somebody else clarify it. Whatever it is, it seems... This is not like indisputable words from the Lord. And there is a distinction that Paul and the New Testament writers make between New Testament prophecy and the teachings of the apostles. And we even see this distinction here in the text. 1 Corinthians 14, 36, Paul refuses the prophets of Corinth the right to make rules for worship other than the ones that he has given. His teaching as an apostle, as a representative of the Messiah, the king, is authoritative. And it's on the level of God's own words to the church, not the teachings of any prophets in Corinth. In 1 Corinthians 14, 37-38, Paul again clearly indicates that in his opinion, no Corinthian prophet had any kind of divine authority equal to his authority as an apostle which clearly distinguishes the words of prophets, both men and women, from the words that form the New Testament. So again, the main thing that I, I just want to draw your attention to at this point in the message is that prophecy is not the same as the revelation that we find in the Bible. And that when prophets shared their insights, God wanted them to take turns. The prophets may have 
felt the promptings of the Spirit to speak. But the Spirit of God at work in the prophets of God would not force them to talk against their will. Nobody's getting slain in the Spirit here, tipping over in ecstasy, out of control. God is not a God of confusion. He's a God of order. Benny Hinn, waving his arms, piling up bodies on the floor, doesn't build up the church. People are falling down. That's not helpful. People get hurt. God is a God of order and peace. That's verse 33. People take turns. That's the first point. And we've already touched on the second point. The tongues must be interpreted. That's verses 27 to 28. I'll just read them again. We'll touch on this briefly. If anyone speaks in a tongue, two or at the most three should speak, one at a time, and someone must interpret. If there is no interpreter, the speaker should keep quiet in the church and speak to himself and to God. Tongue, tongues, as I talked about last week, is speech addressed to God. You can see that back in um, verse 2 of chapter 14. Notice, this is the definition of a tongue, right? The one who speaks in a tongue does not speak to men, but to God. Not men, God. They speak in a spiritual language that's not readily understandable to humans. However, if God sees fit, he may grant an individual or individuals in a local church the supernatural ability to hear these prayers and praises to him in their own language, just as he did in Acts chapter 2. Others might just hear it as babble and say they're all drunk, or as the unbelievers in chapter 14 say, uh, you're all out of your mind. Or God might grant the tongue speaker himself the ability to understand what he's saying. So somebody else might be able to interpret it, or the tongue speaker himself might be able to understand what he's saying. Chapter 14, verse 13. Paul even says they should pray that they would understand what they're saying. But if that ability is not given, and God does not grant somebody else the gift in the church, then the speakers must remain silent in the gathered assembly. There ought to be no uninterpreted language in the midst of God's gathered people. And prophecy ought not just be taken as face value as a word from the Lord, either. People in the church may genuinely have been moved to speak about something they feel the Spirit has revealed to them. But as the example of Agabus I talked about earlier indicates, the New Testament seems to indicate that they could get some of the details factually wrong. Something similar could happen where the Spirit moves you mightily to serve someone. But you serve them in a way that's a little unhelpful because you're clumsy. Or um, because you didn't listen well to what they actually needed. Um, so yes, your impulse to serve is Spirit-given, ministry of service, but not guided by wisdom. Prophets could be prompted to speak, but not be totally correct. And what's more, you had false prophets, prophets actually speaking lies about Jesus that would worm their way into the assembly of God's people and lead many astray. That's why Paul speaks the ground rules at the beginning of chapter 12. He's like, all right, let's get things straight. If somebody is like speaking in the spirit, they're never going to curse Jesus. Why does he say that? Because that probably was happening. You had guys bow in. This happened to a lot of pagan worship ceremonies. 
There would be craziness going on, people out of control, speaking wild stuff, and yelling out curses and stuff. And he said, this is not what's going on in the assemblies of God's people. You don't, if somebody all of a sudden starts cursing Jesus, well, he's prophesying, or he's speaking in tongues. No, like that, that doesn't happen. Jesus is Lord, is what rules over everything that's going on. Prophecy must be evaluated. Verse 29, two or three prophets should speak and the others should weigh carefully what is said. It seems this is probably Paul's guidelines here for the entire gathering. In other words, when, when people come together, there shouldn't be 20, 30, 40 different prophecies going on throughout the whole time. No, two, three at the most people share. And the prophets could be men or women. For example, back in 1 Corinthians 11, verse 5, Paul assumed women were prophesying in the gathered assembly. He doesn't tell them to stop. He only says they, in that culture, should cover their heads while they do it. Now, if you don't remember why, I encourage you to go back, listen to that message um, that I preached on that. Um, and uh, we don't, we definitely don't have time to get into that right now. But we see ladies prophesying. We see the mighty deacon of the early church, a man named Philip. He had four unmarried daughters. And Acts 21, verse 9, tells us they all prophesied. But, again, in the church, when the prophets were taking turns, sharing words, they had to be evaluated. The word used for evaluated here is the word for weighing something, judging it. Not in a condemnatory sense, but in a sifting sense. Sifting against what standard? Well, ultimately against the standard of the written word of God in the Old Testament and of the teachings of the Lord Jesus as handed down by the apostles. As I mentioned earlier, this authority is something Paul makes explicit in this letter, and especially in verses 37 to 38, where he writes, If anyone thinks they are a prophet or otherwise gifted by the Spirit, let them acknowledge that what I am writing to you is the Lord's command, not prophecy the command of Jesus. And if anyone ignores this, they themselves will be ignored. That's serious language. If prophets and tongue speakers insist on speaking out of turn and speaking without interpretation in the worship gatherings and going on and on without letting their prophecies be evaluated by the Lord and tested by the church for truthfulness, they are going against the words of Paul and the commands of the Lord. They should be ignored as prophets. Don't listen to them. Don't give them the microphone. Take it away. Somebody else stand up. <laughs> okay? He's not letting this be tested. One last thing we'll talk about. The fourth thing this morning. Women, says Paul, must not evaluate prophecy in the church. <clears throat> Verses 34 to 35. Women should remain silent in the churches. They are not allowed to speak, but must be in submission, as the law says. If they want to inquire about something, they should ask their own husbands at home, for it is disgraceful for a woman to speak in the church. Now, as you may imagine, these verses have caused quite the stir 
amongst interpreters over the years. What does Paul mean? Well, one thing that's clear that he does not mean, he does not mean that women ought not open their mouths in church. If so, they would not be prophesying in the church. In context, because you kind of have to open your mouth to prophesy or to share a hymn. In context, it seems Paul is forbidding a woman from judging the prophecies in the church, doing what he just talked about. Doing that would seem to go against the God-given role of a husband to be the head of his wife and the wife to submit to her husband. If a wife had a question about a particular prophecy that was shared or a concern about it, they ought to ask their husband at home about it. Or perhaps, if they didn't have a husband, ask someone else privately. But it would be shameful for them to speak up in an authoritative way and judge prophecies in the church. Perhaps one situation that Paul was trying to avoid was a scenario in which a man in the church would share something he felt moved by the Spirit to share, and then his wife would stand up and publicly shame him by disagreeing or discounting what he said in front of everybody. It's just not the context for that, to publicly shame him, ask him at home. For a woman to evaluate and judge prophecy in the church would also put women in the position of leading the church in potentially authoritative ways that Paul has reserved for men in his letters. Why is that the case? Men are pastors in the New Testament. That's a whole big conversation that we could have another day. I'll summarize it this way. Jesus is masculine. Jesus is the chief shepherd the church. Jesus, the masculine Jesus, has entrusted under-shepherds to represent him in caring for his church. The people to represent the masculine Jesus are men, as under-shepherds of the great shepherd, in the role of shepherding, which is what the word pastor means. And pastor and teacher is the same office in the New Testament. So my opinion is the, the, the what do you call it, the category called complementarianism, where men and women are different with complementary roles in the home and in the church. Not everybody thinks this way, but this is a, a passage where I think Paul is saying the men are going to lead in this, but that doesn't mean the women can't have a voice, they can share prophecies, and if they are going to evaluate something, at least in that context, save it for home your questions. Um, there's another view out there. There's actually multiple views. Some people think these verses were even added later, um, and they aren't Paul's writings. I, I disagree with that. Uh, but one of the views says that what Paul's trying to avoid is women interrogating someone who wasn't their husband in public, which would have been considered extremely shameful. So for a woman to stand up and start interrogating someone else's husband, like, what did you mean by that? I, I really want to press into that. No, I, I don't know that. Um, in that culture would have been, you know, a woman did not address someone else's husband. It was very, very, um, in that culture, a sign of uh, lack of, it was just considered shameful. So that's another, uh, another 
opinions out there. And that doesn't mean that, that both things, the thing I said earlier, couldn't, they couldn't simultaneously be true. Um, but point being, uh, Paul wants men, the leaders of the church and the men in the church, to be the ones sifting anybody's word that they want to share. So as we conclude, uh, just look at the last couple verses. Verses 39 and 40. Therefore, my brothers and sisters, be eager to prophesy, and do not forbid speaking in tongues. But everything should be done in a fitting and orderly way. I realize this whole topic of tongues and prophecy is very hotly debated, as is women in the church, for that matter. But Paul's final words for the topic is this. Don't shut down tongues and be eager to prophesy. That have a really, really strong argument to say tongues have ceased. Because that's the opposite of what Paul says. So, I, personally, I have not been convinced by those supposed really, really, really strong arguments. But you may have been. That, that's okay. Christians have disagreed about this stuff for a long time. Be eager to prophesy. Paul says a similar thing, 1 Thessalonians 5, 19-22. He says, do not quench the spirit. Do not treat prophecies with contempt. But test them all. Hold on to what is good. Reject every kind of evil. Which means there could be a prophet spewing evil. In your genuine concern, friends, I just want to encourage you. In your genuine concern that I share over a lot of what's been called charismatic chaos that we see around the world, let's be careful not to swing the pendulum the other way so that we quench the spirit of God and put out the flame of his movement in the midst of his church. All sides agree that the spirit is at work in the people of God. The question is how and to what extent. One thing is sure, the spirit of Jesus loves to minister to the family of Jesus through all the gifts in action as he sees fit to use them over the ages. So, what are some ways we can apply this to our lives? Here's two things. First, this is for me, much as for you. Be eager for the Spirit of God to move in your life and in the lives of others. Our posture as Christians towards the work of the Spirit of God in our own lives and globally in the midst of God's people, our posture should not be a posture of skepticism, but of eager anticipation. And I've had to repent of this in my own life. Yeah, did God really do that? Yeah, we want to be wise. We want to be discerning. But what's your knee jerk? Is it skeptical towards the work of God, or do you expect God to move? Expect God to work. Expect God to show up, to actually heal people, and boldly ask him to do so. My encouragement to you is ask God to move by the Spirit in your life. Ask him to give you discernment to see where he is at work, and to judge and weigh the things that 
appear to be him working in the world. Cultivate a heart that expects the Spirit of God to be at work. And be willing to speak with others about something you truly believe that the Spirit has put on your heart, has shown you. Perhaps on our next Testimony Sunday, you share something. I'm not saying you come up here and you grab the mic and you've got your walkie-talkie on with God and you share a word from the Lord that replaces the Bible in our time of worship. I'm saying that you might use your own words to articulate something you believe the Holy Spirit has prompted you to say. Maybe it will come to you while you're sitting down and Carl's talking and you've got to stand up and stop him. No, I'm just kidding. But maybe it will come by the prompting of the Holy Spirit. Maybe it will come to you in the week leading up to the next Testimony Sunday. This type of thing happens all the time. The Spirit placing something on your heart to share with God's people. It happens all the time in the lives of countless millions of Christians around the world. Even those who believe prophecy has ceased, they still experience the movings of the Spirit to speak things that I think Paul would have identified as prophetic words. So my final plea to you is be eager for the Spirit to move Holy Spirit, Son of God, Eternal Father, we come to you. Triune God who made us, I ask that you would fill us afresh with a sense of your presence. May your spirit move in our midst, shape us more and more to be like Jesus. That is the aim of the Spirit, to build us up into the mature, perfect man, to be like Christ, the last Adam, and to prepare us for the new creation, where we will live with him forever. And I just ask that you would cultivate a hunger in our hearts, an expectation for you to move, for you to show up, for you to do what you do, saving people, convicting of sin, changing lives, building your church, tearing down the work of the devil, driving out demons, healing sickness, providing for your saints, and resurrecting them all on the last day. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.